Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Content marketer, producer, entrepreneur, educator, and author. These are some of the many roles comprising the career of today's guest, Mohit Rajans. If the name sounds familiar, it's probably because you've seen his work in front of the camera. Apart from the aforementioned, Mohit's eclectic career includes various roles reporting for the CBC, Breakfast Television, and Omnia Television, where he was Canada's authority on Bollywood cinema. Mohit Rajans sits down with me to chat about his life growing up in Mississauga, attending an arts high school where he focused on the dramatic arts, his experience as a movie extra, and working as an on-air talent and a marketer. We'll also get an interesting story about the time he was given an 11th hour opportunity to interview then-Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. It was interesting, actually. I started to realize uh, my career was going in a direction that I was starting to worry about with reference to media. And that was that I was getting a lot of great experience and I wasn't able to share it with multiple and lots of people because I was working in an industry that was really keeping its secrets guarded based on the organization or company that I was working for at the time. And so Think Start Inc. was birthed as a result of knowing that there's going to be nothing but opportunity ahead of us in the digital and media spheres in the next 5, 10, 20 years. And the idea is to, was to take a bunch of great people who have uh, um, knowledge in various different sectors and give them more freelance and consulting roles. So they could have multiple touch points and multiple verticals and possibly, you know, take a little bit of a leadership role when it comes down to discovering new possibilities in media. So I co-founded the company with um, an original um, partner and we set out to start to meet with companies originally to discover what their needs were. And for the past two and a half years, we've been lucky enough to work with both big corporate clients and startup creators uh, on various projects to really, uh, re- really, like I said, look at what the opportunities are for the future and in, in innovation side of both media and digital. I want to go back to the beginning, though. Because there's a bit of overlap between uh, between our upbringings and where we're from. So where are you from? So I'm um, born in Scarborough, raised in Saga, live in Toronto. Uh, a little bit of a trifecta. Yourself? Oh, the fact that you called it Saga, Mississauga, the Saga or Saga, that shows that you definitely spent a good chunk of your childhood there and your teenage yes. years. Yes. Very informative. Watch Square One be built around me. <laughs> um you took that Route Route Twenty Rathburn when the Route Twenty Six you you missed on on Burnham Thorpe. I'm very much a heart of Saga kid. I wasn't in Aaron Mills and and the you know beyond Cooksville area. What Mississauga grew around me, which is was odd to be honest with you. I grew up in a city where every time I went to tell people I was from there, they would tell me something about it that I didn't even know. So it was kind of weird because I grew up in the city while it was expanding right in front of my eyes. Which is funny because I remember that too growing up where there were certain parts of the city that you cited where it seemed like one year a farm would disappear and it would be replaced with a subdivision. Yeah, you're 100% right. And then your only indication about whether you were going to have friends from there was whether a bus was there yet. Like whether <laughs> That's a good the bus, point. Whether the Mississauga Transit had actually carved out a, a, a place for your friend to get a bus so that you could actually... That's how it was in my day. I don't know. You probably had chauffeurs and stuff by the time you were ready 
Barack around saying. <laughs> no, no, we're not that far apart. I describe Mississauga sincerely as the three S's, shopping malls, schools, and subdivisions, and that the city is so big that if it wasn't next to Toronto, it probably would have maybe its own NHL team, but at least a CFL team. That's actually a very, very, very good point. That's a really, you're, you're 100% right. It could easily be replicated uh, um, as a mid-American, you know, a size in terms of small town, et cetera. But the other thing you mentioned about that is that, you know, Mississauga was the original diversity project. And so when, and I say project in the sense of like, it was definitely an experiment because while it was happening, it wasn't happening as a result of um, a major necessity. People came to Mississauga to escape where you started to see things started to develop a little bit too much. So it was funny to see Mississauga become the overflow city originally because people were mostly in the east of the city of Toronto. So yeah, it was, it's, it was a great learning experience. I surrounded myself. I lived with um, a wonderful melting pot of people and they went to school at Cawthorn Park as well, which I've heard through the grapevine that you did as well. Yeah, I, I went to Cawthorn Park as well. So why don't you tell, uh, tell our audience what made Cawthorn Park so special versus, say, a conventional high school? I still have friends that I went to high school with, um, and I have friends from all creeds of life and all different types of places that I, I still stay in touch with as a result of my experiences at Cawthra. But two very informative things that actually carried on into my career uh, that I take from Cawthra um, as experience for what set off many chain of events. One is a quite emotional one, which I'll be happy to tell you, which was, well, actually, I'll tell you the funny one first. The funny one slash emotional one was when you're at Cawthra in the drama program, um, you're asked to do external credits or go outside and basically get some work to validate yourself in the business. When I was in grade nine, uh, we went out and we did extra work. So we got to work on film and TV sets for, and my first, one of my first experiences, I was on the set of a mini series, uh, called, um, the, it was called Common Ground, and it was about the segregation of the Boston school system. And at, so there's about 100 of us extras, and they put us in an extra lineup, and they divided us between uh, uh, blacks and whites because they wanted um, the black characters to be on one side during the riot scene that and dressed a certain way. It was the 70s, and the white kids dressed on a certain way, 70s. So the the way it would work is the actor would come up. And the casting director would talk a little bit the, to the second director and they would murmur and then she would scream at directions of wardrobe and the person got taken away and got dressed for the thing. So it came to me and the lady stops for a second. They're looking at each other because they don't know. I'm South Asian. For those of you listening, I'm neither considered black or white in this context. And the lady screams out in front of everybody. Did they have any Mexican people back in the 70s? Oh my god. So, oh my god, I've got my I've got my hand on my face. I can't believe anyone said that. Imagine A that I'm in grade 9, right? So or grade maybe 10 at this point. I'm mortified because this is one of my first experiences on any film or TV set. And then on top of that, I do, they don't know where to put me. And it became such a catalyst for how I, I didn't even want to start doing more extra work. And all my friends were getting more extra work because I, I, I kept getting scared that if they didn't know what to do with me, how am I going to like, what if they decide they can't do something with me? Or what if I'm in a scene where my person isn't at a party? It really did shape. And to be honest with you, it ended up shaping me not auditioning for so much in high school as a result. And I never thought about it until I became reflective about it and started telling my story from a more uh, confident standpoint. But that Cawthor Park experience plus the uh, the fact that I got to um, be taught 
uh, one year by Dave Power, who was a drama teacher, who was also an executive. There is a name I have not heard in a while. Yeah, and people don't know this, but he was an executive producer on uh, Three's Company. And Three's Company was one of my favorite TV shows of all time. And so to have that connection for a really small amount of time, we didn't have a bond. He and I did not have a bond. There was no, like, but I just knew this sort of weird thing about it um, that I always like like to boast about. Did David Power do your convocation? Because if I, if he's the drama teacher I'm thinking of, he had that kind of rich baritone voice. Like you wanted him to narrate your documentary. He, you wanted, like, I would have him read, if I had to do an autobiography, like a proper audiobook about my life, I'd be like, you know what? If Morgan Freeman isn't available or George Clooney, you give it to Dave Power and then just let him read it. Hmm. Have I got the right guy? Uh, you know what? There were two that were very superior. Uh, Mr. Cunder and Dave Power were very similar in the way they're, that they. They're, I know, I know, I know both of them. And, uh, Mr. Cunder was, even though he was a drama teacher, he ended up being my OAC. That was grade 13 for any young people listening. We had that legitimately back in our day. He was also teaching English. It was definitely different from Mr. Power. Okay. Well, uh, you know what? <laughs> the reason I'm skirting the question is because I didn't go to my own convocation. And so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the truth. So I don't have any sort of even memory barrier to be like, hmm. If I was to put myself in that situation, <laughs> I don't even have that. I'm kind of embarrassed that I never went to my convocation. I never went to either, actually. I didn't even go to my Mac one either. You just decided to bail on it. Is it because they were going to charge you to go? I always found that really weird, especially in university. It's just like I've given you thousands and thousands of dollars every year, not just for tuition, but for housing, textbooks, everything I bought on campus. And now you're going to charge me like an extra 300 bucks for a gown and a piece of paper? No, the reason I didn't want to go back to the, well, the Mac one, I didn't want to go back to because I didn't want to take time off my first job that I got um, to go, to go back to. And at, I remember in high school, I was writing exams and I couldn't come back. So. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, you were, we uh, sorry, in university, I was in writing exams and I couldn't come back to high school. Yeah. Anyway, gotcha. and this is riveting so far. I'm sure people love hearing about this <laughs> business saga day. Uh, in the 90s and 2000s yes we're the media people that's where the dream is born that's where the dream is born and in case anyone's listening toronto does not have an airport it's mississauga actually no they do they got billy bishop so that's what i i tell my international friends they're like where do you live and i go if you ever fly to toronto you're gonna land in my hometown so we know that uh that drama and acting was one of your interests growing up was there anything else any sort of outside influences uh, outside influences had more to do with the fact that, well, I would actually, so I'm definitely a product of several different environments. Uh, at home, I uh, grew up with uh, traditional Indian parents who came to this country in the 60s, had very much Indian values in our house, celebrated every Hindu festival you can imagine. Uh, in high school, I was surrounded by mostly arts-related people, though I was commonly uh, hanging out with the hip-hop heads in the cafeteria at lunch. And then when I was home, I was hanging out with more more of my European friends and listening to freestyle music and uh, washing cars. So I'm very much a product of my environment in those three three realms. And uh, as a result, have grown up watching world cinema, have, you know, uh, done work in Bollywood, which comes from my Indian influence, and uh, have a huge contingent of my um, experience in the media business directly related to all of those influences, whether it's people I've interviewed, people I've worked with, shows I've worked on. Yeah, I've become very, very in tune with the fact that I'm a product of my environments. 
Talk to me a little bit about um, your passion or interest in Bollywood cinema. I mean, I imagine that was passed on to you by your parents. Yeah, definitely uh, older brother and parents. Uh, my parents came over prior to the VHS sh- uh, generation, as I call it. And so when VHS tapes started to come into the market in, in North America, it was the 80s. And that really created a boom for Indian cinema in North America because there was finally this accessible way for people who had watched movies their whole lives in, in the big theater to see movies uh, at home. And that created a groundswell in North America for everything from touring a Bollywood stars to do major concerts to appearances to shooting films here to uh tv shows about bollywood and entertainment shows about it so from there i grew up watching some of that stuff in the toronto area and on what was considered at that time ethnic television um and really started to show an interest from a cinema standpoint rather than just a song and dance standpoint and uh it yeah it's uh did you ask me about why or did you ask me about what i've done in it or, or no, how you got into it. Like, like, oh, yeah. how did, like, especially because, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, you're a first generation Canadian, right? Yes, I'm first generation Canadian and no direct uh, connection to either the industry nor aspirations to want to be a part of it. And so that's what I meant was, is that it had to have been passed on to you by someone. So that it was your parents that got you into it. And you mentioned to your older brother that they related it. They, they're the ones that, uh, I mean, got you into it. So let me ask you this question then. What got you hooked? Like, is there a a particular movie or a scene from Bollywood where you said, okay, I want to know more about this. I want to know more about cinema from India. Well, I have two very quick stories I'll tell you. Um, I was, A, always fascinated on how the movies were able to invoke emotion, even when I didn't 100% know what was going on. Um, I didn't feel that connection with Hollywood movies. I, I, the invoked emotion I could only feel in Hollywood movies when I was younger was fear when I was supposed to be scared of something. I never felt sad when I watched, I rarely felt like a love, like, you know, I wasn't watching Titanic and being like, Oh, that's so sad. Like just that connection. But for some reason with Bollywood films, it could take a, a song, like a subtitle that I read about what they're saying to each other. And I'd be like, wow, that's crazy to think. Um, so Maybe I, I just sort of fell in love with the idea of how it was representing movies. Um, but I mean, to be honest with you, if I had to just write a chapter about what that genre of film did for both my life and career, if I had to write a book, I mean, about that, I could and not even explain to you about anything else that I've done, because I've been one of the few people in the world that has been so lucky to not have to play the rules of that industry, to get to cover the industry the way I did. When you're a media person in Bollywood and you work in the Indian cinema industry, there's there's four or five levels. There is, you know, there's people who have ownership of things. There you can't get near A and B list celebrities before us. There's so there's thousands of TV stations around the world. But because I did all my work out of Canada and because I had that steady progress of really documenting it while it was on the up and it became part of my my uh, media life and not everything in my media life, I was so lucky. I mean, oh my gosh, I, I can't tell you to this day, I look back sometimes and go, I don't know how I got away with how, how amazing some of those experiences. And I guarantee to this day, um, people not be able to replicate that luck. I was just very lucky. I knock on wood and I'm like, I'm just not going to put my head down and hope the best for everybody else in the future.
does part of that have to do with the fact that you had kind of grown to become the authority or the voice of Bollywood cinema or Bollywood or just Bollywood cinema news for Canadians? So anytime any of the producers or PR managers looking to promote those films abroad came to Canada, they were just like, well, then we've got to we've got to put our talent in front of Mohit because we know he's got an audience for this. You know what? I appreciate that. And that is true. A uh, cultivation of relationships was definitely a part of it, but nothing you could take for granted. I would sit there one uh, one session for thirty minutes with with an actor from India and think I've had the like the craziest time bonding with them and meet them three years later, and they would look at me like I'd never seen them before in their life. So it was definitely not one of those things that I had any misgivings that I had these fantastic relationships with the stars, but I knew how to maneuver. I knew how to speak languages. But here's the irony: of what I'm saying to you. In 2000, in the year 2000, as a result of the traumatic um, high school like experiences in the world of acting, plus going through university, not necessarily 100% knowing what I wanted to do, I started the Toronto South Asian Film Festival just so that artists didn't feel the same way I did. And the idea was to create a platform at that time so that South Asians from North America could start showcasing their work without thinking to themselves they had to either be quote-unquote Caucasian to do it or a Bollywood person to do it. So the irony was I originally created a festival to sort of outsmart the idea that brown people weren't just making Bollywood cinema. And then later on, ended up covering Bollywood for the next 15 years as this is my big payback. So a uh, shout out to Dinesh too. Dinesh was my co-founder of Filmy back in 2000 and he's, um, he's still carrying the torch on that festival. But before you got any work behind or in front of the camera or you, you founded the... Uh... So it's a Southeast Asian Film Festival. I'm sorry. I always it's, 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 it's called Filmy and it's called Filmy Toronto South Asian Festival. South Asian Film Festival. So before any of that happened and you started that, you had to have had your first job. So let me ask you, what was your very first part-time job? Oh, my very first part-time job was a warehouse manager at an ingredient company. Tell us a little bit more about the job. Like what did, what, what was entailed in a typical shift and what did you learn about, about yourself from your first job? Look, I was not qualified to do anything at any point early in my career. So I'm definitely somebody who ended up very lucky with the, my, my first job. But the most interesting thing about that job was that it was at a place that actually supplied all the raw ingredients for, um, for companies like that made cookies and cakes and all that sort of stuff. But it smelt like an international world of flavors. And while uh, you get used to it and you think, well, it could smell worse, that's great. What you took with you as a result and wherever you went and how often you had to, uh, you have to shower twice a day to get the odor <laughs> off you because it, it would like, that's how much it was. Imagine you're just dipping yourself in a, in a pail of ketchup chips or, or like, you know, depend what day, what shipment was going out. This is very interesting. But what I learned the most that I definitely carried with me that I found interesting was I learned how much people ended up putting in small businesses to make them successful. And it always, always dawned on me that, you know, you could be in a situation where you just have a really good idea and you know that this could provide for your family and this could be it. You can, you know, build a little warehouse like this and the dream can come from this. That was a real good eye opener because I remember thinking as a kid, how do people get from thinking they want to do something to having an office and getting somebody to pay for something and get it. You know what I mean? So it was very practical about the world of business that I learned from that, that I kept with me. We already established that you went to McMaster university after graduating high school. So my question is what brought you to McMaster and what did you study there? 
I went to McMaster originally to get into the commerce program and also to get away from home. And um, both things happened. I got into the commerce program and I got away from home. Um, after my first year of university, I realized that I didn't want to do accounting, which was a big focus of commerce at that time. And because they wouldn't compromise about me taking something else, I dropped out of it. And when I dropped out of it, it essentially sent me on this path of, okay, now I just need to get by and get a degree. So um, I got a BA in what at that time was called human relations slash labor relations. And I think now it's labor, labor, it's labor, labor studies. It, it, what, it was labor relations after it was labor studies. And then it was human relations after. So whatever it ended up being, I don't even know. <laughs> My wife has surprisingly has her degree frame right in front of me and I, I don't. Um, but I, the reason I'm telling you all this is because what I had to do after was really decide, you know, what was that investment for? And when I was at Mac, I did several things that really set the stage for some amazing experiences in my life. I worked at the school. Um, I volunteered at the radio station. And so I had my own show by third or fourth year once a week, just talking about really, you know, campus related stuff. I volunteered to write for the school newspaper. Little known fact, I volunteered for, to write at the McMaster School newspaper. Myself and a girl by the name of Celine Wong um, ended up being the first people at Mac to write about hip hop ever. And we ended up completely changing the way that newspaper ended up covering hip hop. And Celine Wong ended up winning an award recently as a writer on the show Hip Hop Evolution um that was on netflix so basically you went for an education but you got most of your education and experience you'd say outside of the classroom with all the extracurricular things you were doing 100 percent. and to that point one of my most recent contracts recently was with another person i graduated from mac with um who lived in the same residence with me and is working at a big company and you know that's that's how deep those relationships get so similar to you, when I was at Brock University, I did a lot of extracurricular work as well, and it helped make me the person I am today. Let me ask you this question. Was the extracurricular activity so much fun that you thought about delaying graduation by a year or breaking up maybe your final year, or were you ready to graduate? No, I was worried. I mean, look, I think when I, in retrospect, I look back at my final year of university and maybe think, yeah, there was quite a few other things I could have been doing, but... I was really worried um, because by the fourth year, I knew that it was going to take a lot for me to not pursue my dream. And, and if I was going to pursue my dream, I'd have to come very, very clean about what it is that dream was and not the fact that it was a bunch of different things. And so I was ready to go. The extracurricular stuff set the stage for so many amazing experiences afterwards as well, but nothing was part and parcel. Like if I hadn't worked at the paper and radio, I, I would still look have looked for a career in media. That's not the thing. Um, so, I mean, no, I, I have to say no to that. I didn't look at delaying. I wanted to keep going. I just didn't realize how tough it was going to be after to really get established and really move towards a, a strong goal. So what made you get into recruitment then after graduation? I was recruited. I was recruited from other people who uh, were at McMaster University and thought that I had a, a good personality and had seen me around campus. Um, and they came to me and they said, uh, we had lunch well, in my last year, and they said, this is how we structure things. There's, at that time, they were saying, 
we're anticipating a big boom in the internet and we think that people are going to be needing these types of jobs. Do you think you could do this? And I was like, so basically you want me to look at people's resumes, call them and see if they're right for a job. <laughs> and they're like, yep. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So that's basically what got me in. And wow, talk about boiler room. Like I literally went from frat houses and, and, you know, university lifestyle to the closest thing I can um, describe it as is boiler room, the movie, uh, an American like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. type work environment, you know, smile and dial, high fives, be the, be the customer, let the customer be you. Very, very, what, what you look back at now and go, you know what I mean? It oh, was, no, I uh, hear you. Yeah, I, but I did it for about two years because of two things. One, paid everything off. So like no reason to worry about that. Um, and then two, it was uh, the only thing in front of me that I didn't have to prevent me from making any really hardcore decisions. Um, and then I met my wife uh, there, surprisingly. Well, that, that's a plus. Um, yeah. like There's uh, a recruitment yeah. joke in there somewhere, but I assume yeah. she worked with you. <laughs> No, I recruited my wife and uh, then I told her the job position was the uh, marriage and uh, no, um, no, what was really odd was, uh, you know, six months, I don't know, maybe a year after I graduated, I was still there and um, she walked in in the very same circumstance of leaving uh, a kinesiology degree with a kinesiology degree, not knowing what to do uh, with her life, wanting to pay off debt. And we, we sat across from each other for a year recruiting. Um, getting to know each other. And uh, it wasn't until years later that we ended up together. Like I had quit. I'd moved on to my career, things. Yeah. We, we, we didn't get together at work. As a recruiter though, you spent, you said you spent about two to three years doing that. Are you, did that help you? Did you learn how to promote yourself better to other potential employers because of that? Cause I got to imagine you in, in that, in that time period, you went over thousands of resumes. Like, you know what a good resume looks like versus a bad resume. You know what a great interview looks like versus a bad interview. Like you must've, you must've taken so much away that it helped you nail any other job you had to apply for. That's a really good point. It definitely helped with my soft skills. What it didn't do is with me understanding why people do things. So I really struggled. For instance, I knew that the recruitment process could be fairly biased if it wasn't done properly. And I knew that an applicant tracking system was not going to be able to spit out effectively what um, information was going to be needed. But nobody wanted to hear that. So I think I was definitely the type of person who felt like he could speak up and, and sell confidently to people. But the two things that really held me back were, A, I never felt like we were being the most efficient with the way we were trying to find people. And then B, and probably the biggest, I never could understand how people justified how one person with the exact same skill set was worth you know $10 an hour less than the other person. It just never, it really hurt me at times, you know, like it was one of those weird things where I, I was just like, you know, this person is raising a family, doing their thing and blah, blah, blah. And we want to offer them this also that we can hit some, you know, magical American target that makes us all feel good at the conference. Like it just, all of that stuff really started to get at me where I was just like, that could change that person's life, but I'm just hoping to get a high five at work. I don't get it. No, I'm with you on that. I've never been a recruiter, but I've been on the other side of the table I mean, recruiting people for jobs and at least um, going through applications and so forth. And yeah, when 
we're trying to sort out, hey, I'm usually that guy in the room going, no, here's why this person is worth what they're worth. And I'm always trying to push it more, try to make it as livable as possible. Because the other, the other thing too, and you highlighted quite well, is that they've got other responsibilities. And if you don't give them the wage they need to meet those obligations, like we're not talking about someone asking for a crazy amount of money, something that's consistent with the job and what the job would pay in other companies. If you don't give them that, they're going to go elsewhere, especially yeah. if you think you're hiring the best person. You're right. You, after recruitment, we get your first media job, or I guess your first paid media gig, because you did do some media work, as you mentioned, extracurricular media work when uh, you were at McMaster University. And it was the Directors Guild of Canada. So perfect fit, your passion for media, and then you're working for a union, and that was your degree in, in labor relations or business relations. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, so not, yeah, uh, not, not what I considered a perfect fit, um, mainly because the job was, was very administrative and, uh, but learned so like anything that somebody would have to learn by being on set for two years, I learned in six months by being in that office. I learned exactly how agents work, how the industry work, what unions have to speak with people, how people determine availabilities of talent on screen, how people have to communicate with business agents to negotiate contracts prior to coming to the US. What I learned so much in that first job, working a minimum wage, um, uh, working minimum wage, traveling probably an hour and a half on subway uh, and thing. But I learned so much at that job that it made me so prepared for everything else after. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, then through that job, ended up picking up on-air media gigs at the same time. So it was definitely the start of some great, great experiences. It's funny, the irony between that, because on one side, you're part of the unions. And on the other side, you've got a freelance media gig. And I say it's ironic because unions aren't – they're not very pro-freelance work. They want people part of their guild. And, oh, and, yeah, and rightfully they, they so, they want them to have a living wage and all that sort of stuff. Like they do a lot of great things. But here you are wearing kind of two kind of opposing hats at the same time. Yeah. Uh, just very quickly though, um, people who work at the Directors Guild aren't unionized. Oh, really? You know what? I've never yeah. actually that, – that's interesting. I've never thought about that. Are yes, people who the, work full-time for the union unionized? No. They're, they're the people who are full-time members of the union are unionized. Yes. When I worked, now that might be different now. When I worked at the director's guild, we were considered management of union. We weren't considered a union. So you started your, um, your freelance work, um, in front of the camera with Omnia news or sorry, Omni news. How did that come about? So Omni news at that time slash the Omni two team was looking to expand their offering to an hour long format right around the time we had started the South Asian film festival. It was a really crappy time around um, September 11th as well. Uh, like with, around the 2000, 2001 era um, time period and Omni was looking to expand their programming and somebody had come to the South Asian film festival and had seen me present there uh, one of the films. And then subsequently one of the executive producers had called, uh, I believe a few months after and asking, you know, what my, my aspirations are. And so I ended up going and I filed a couple of sort of trial stories for their news department. And then um, they had put together a team for their flagship 
uh, Bollywood show, which already had had its an iteration. It had an original version uh, that they wanted to revamp into this hour long format and try something new, etc. And that's when they welcomed me as part of their sort of part time team to be a little bit more of their what they refer to as um, like a, a crossover, right? Um, personality, somebody who could speak the duality that is and not just be too like Bollywoody or too non-Bollywoody. So I fit the description and uh, yeah, I ended up working there for, gosh, Bollywood Boulevard for me was, I don't remember the final tally of years. It was throughout my career though. Um, it remained a mainstay from a freelance perspective. I was uh I did everything from report for it to co-host, to uh, do live events, to travel, to, yeah. Concurrently, you were also doing freelance work for the CBC. So what were you covering for them? Yeah, so my journey with CBC was very interesting because at that time, um, I was applying to everything to do with diversity because I thought it was one of the only ways to get in. So there were diversity contests and programs and stuff like that. And so with CBC, I, my entry point actually got in through radio. And I'd won a contest to file for Andy Berry's show, which was the morning show at that time. So in winning that contest, I got the quote unquote demo part of it, right? Like I didn't get the the payment for all that stuff, but I got the the like the voice demo on air. So it was great because between Omni now and between the CBC um, uh, a project that I had done, I ended up having a functional demo that at that time you needed in order to get jobs in the industry. So that was great. But what I didn't realize that was that I didn't realize the power of relationships. And so what ended up happening was it was less about me getting my demo in front of people. And it was really more about me going to people time after time and explaining what skills I bring. Remember, I'm not the prettiest guy at the table. I'm not the brownest guy at the table. I'm not the tallest. I'm not the, I don't fit any description at this time for what news producers, TV producers, any of these people are looking for. I'm going to them and I'm saying, I have these types of things that I can talk about. And I think your audience will like to talk about these types of things. And they're looking at me in most cases and going, you think I'm going to let you on air talking about this stuff just because you have an interest in it. But that's kind of what you need to be is passionate. That's the only way you can talk about that sort of stuff. Like, like I'll give you an example, like using you as an example, like, sure, you can give someone a script and they can talk about Bollywood cinema, but they're not going to deviate from that script. They're not going to have any sort of last second insights. They're not going to be paying attention to Bollywood news to be able to inform their audience differently as things start to progress. They're just going to be reading off that script. So it's kind of weird that they would kind of push that back on you. And say, no, 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 you got to have more than just passion or we can't just hire on passion. Well, no, it's weird is not the way to describe what you're describing. What what was happening at that time was blatant ignorance. And I'm not saying because I didn't get the work. I'm saying it because of the fact that we were we were stuck in a time period. And I've said this before on podcasts, but within Canadian media, I'm sure many people reflectively look back at what was built between 2000 and 2010 and what they could have done with it to lead the way internationally and how so many missteps from the, like, it, it, it pains me to think about how many awesome opportunities, how much talent we had in this country during that decade that could have set us, set the stage for 
three decades after that got completely lost in this idea that we're a sports first country, that we needed a certain type of, of male monolith character on TV to dominate. We let we let people in senior positions stay way too long in their positions and watch media com- companies crumble. We followed everybody's lead that was doing wrong. We didn't take any of the initiative innovation-wise. It's sad. The Canadian, the Canadian media industry, especially from the news side, had so much potential that they just squandered away in job security and protectionism. And it's sad for me because right now there should be 15 Mohits working in newsrooms and there should be 15 Mohits making podcasts. And fi- and I don't mean like me as personality. I mean, 15 versions of me. If I was to come to you as a news producer and t- and walk you through the five or six different lanes that I could end up providing stories for you for, and you don't take any of them in exchange for you protecting your job, then you're not listening to how your audience is developing. And I found that time and time again, it's one of the reasons why I left um, the business, because I was just I was sick of trying to understand why none of these changes were happening. So, yeah, sorry. Sorry for venting. (laughs) No, no. uh, What you said about executives at the top hanging around for a little too long or just being inflexible rather than trying to adapt and just sticking with what they know. Yeah. I, I, dude, I've been in this industry for 15 years and I completely concur with that. Even though I wasn't on the talent side of things, I was on uh, the media sales side of things. So yeah, I mean, I dropped this line in my podcast over and over again when I was at CBC, cause I did some time there in, in the media sales and marketing department. We're going back to, I think 2008. Um, one of the reps there who'd been there since I think the late seventies, he saw me on YouTube and he's just like, so do you think this youtube.com is going to catch on? And my response to him was, well, the kids are really into it. And if they stick with it long enough, I think this might get some traction. Like <laughs> that's what I was hearing. But but in all of uh, everything you did in front of the camera, you got one really big opportunity that not a lot of uh, not a lot of journalists or on-air talent get. You had the opportunity to interview. Was he prime minister at the time or was it former prime minister, Stephen Harper? Uh, yeah, no, he was prime minister at the time. Yes, Uh I had the opportunity to interview Stephen Harper um, at a very special event that I didn't know at the time I was going to get to interview him. So imagine what it would be like for you to, you know, uh, go. Do you want me to tell the story or? Oh, we want to hear the story. I, and I want to preface that by saying sure, that uh, sure. Stephen Harper it was very closely guarded when it came to the media. Like, I would hear rumblings from other people who worked in the journalistic side of things who would say, no. Um, he wants to preview the questions ahead of time. He only gives a certain amount of time to journalists. Sometimes he'll cherry pick who he's going to give the interview to. And I mean, that was that was a general complaint during his premiership. So to hear you, please, I, I know the tip of the iceberg of your story, but please tell us because it just seemed like it was one giant opportunity they kept giving for you. So I actually have two very different Stephen Harper stories, but they happened at two different times in my career. So um uh, I'll, I'll tell you the one we're referring to right now. So I was basically tipped off by a, a mutual friend that a big Bollywood star was going to be uh, making a surprise visit at a movie theater. And obviously the press knew and the camera call was there, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she said to me flat out, she said, I can get you 15 minutes with them. I can't tell you if it's going to be before or after the movie. So I said to her flat out, I was like, if it's going to be after the movie, I can't do it because I can't keep my camera guy that long. He's not going to sit around and watch a three hour movie. Plus the delays of the fact that this big star is there. Like it just seemed like a six hour 
um, ordeal for a 15 minute interview uh, of somebody who I've, I've interviewed before. Um, but that point, the point is I went and uh, thankfully uh, things were late. And so while they were waiting for things to set up, I got to do my interview. But right before I got to go in my interview, the girl turned to me and says to me, um, the prime, the prime minister is essentially, you know, here uh, talking to him. Uh, you can go in, set up, blah, blah, blah. But rather than just go in and set up, I went in and started talking. And, I, you know, my camera guy followed me as if we did one of those sort of POV things, as if he was following me to to, to <laughs> crash a party. And then I, I walk in, I just have the conversation. You can see there's, there is a clip on YouTube. You can tell that neither of them really understand my energy to begin with about what I'm you know, what my vibe is, but it was such an amazing conversation because no, nothing was pre-planned. They talked about each other, which was a very rare thing for the prime minister to talk about what he knows about this random, you know, Bollywood actor and, you know, the Bollywood actor talking about what he loved about Canada. So the clip got picked up. It was just, it was a really big moment, but I got in trouble after, to be honest with you. That's the what? big story story here. Yeah. Who, who, got, well, who did you get in trouble with? So here's what happened. I, I was on, like, I was so amazed that I could say to, you know, I, I just knew the gravity of the situation was just so awesome for myself. And I was so happy. And I, you know, thank the girl. I was like, thank you so much. What a great moment. I was a little, I was stupid about one thing um, that the prime minister's office offered to take a picture. And I was like, no, 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 it's okay. Because I wanted to get out. Meanwhile, I'm thinking to myself, that's one thing I should have probably done. <laughs> but, but that's okay. Because there was a fast forward moment. I'll tell you about some other time. What I do want to tell you about this is that, and this is a lesson in communication, what ended up happening was I, um, that was a Friday that I got that interview. And at that time, we had two different types of camera people. We had the big ENG camera people, so the people that shot on the big beta tapes, and we had the digital camera people who shot on the literal small things at that time. You know, little did we realize that the quality on the digital ones were better. Anyway, I digress. So... We go back to the station and naturally it's a Friday. And so I offload the uh, tapes to be um, converted into and put into the system. And I go off and do my stuff. And I know I'm going to come back on Monday, paper edit it and get it ready for the show. So I get a call Friday night from the producer at City TV uh, who was working. And she's like, I'm looking at footage of you interviewing the prime minister today. And I was like, yeah, I got to, and I explained the whole story. I was like, maybe I'm getting some kudos. And remember, I'm still fighting for validity within the city TV system. I've got, you know, I'm working on BT. I'm not really, I'm not really a part of the news team at all. And yeah. And she basically sent me an email after, after she verified that it was the footage, you know, and she didn't jump the gun that it wasn't something from the archives. And it was CC with the VP on it saying in the future, we have a protocol when it comes to, uh, dignitaries and notifications and, you know, corporate, et cetera. And, uh, without permission, without standards in place, you run the risk. Like it's a very formal. And I was like, are you kidding me? I, wow. I did not. And I mean, it's, she's right. She was in hindsight, she was right. If somebody did that to me, but I also would not have said no to the opportunity thinking that there were protocols in place that I needed to follow. You see my argument back would have been, well, what kind of blowback would you have had from the prime minister's office if City TV had said, no, we don't want to interview you. Like he's asking for yeah. an interview and then, and then major media company. Because remember, that point- I did that, but I, I did this for Omni. And I think that's where the discrepancy ended up. Like, I mean, that's where the, where she felt kind of slighted. Right. So she kind of felt like, well, wait a minute, you got this exclusive through 
Omni, which you did, essentially. Essentially, I, at that time, the bigger deal was Mohit had the exclusive, right? And so, as you can imagine, back in the day when exclusive meant something, that became the story. Mohit got the exclusive with the Bollywood star and prime minister. And then, so by the time I get to work on Monday and between emails and stuff, it's like, well... You know, how are you a team player when you had an exclusive and not and not every other news group that we're in had this exclusive as well? Right. So that's where I got in trouble. I got more comments on that, but I'm glad you went through with it because that's one hell of an experience and it's one hell of a story. But just touching on breakfast television for a second, because anyone listening that's not from Canada, breakfast television is basically Canada's version of Good Morning America. So that's that's the authority authoritative morning show in the country, if you will. Tell us a little bit about the work you did for BT and how it differed from what you were doing with, say, Omni TV and CBC. Thank you for asking, actually. I had a great time. I was an eight-year segment producer at Breakfast Television. I think I started as an associate and went to segment. I originally started for six months on a maternity contract and ended up there for eight years. I uh, did everything from produce uh, content at Disney World for, for more, the morning show to, uh, gosh, uh, Niagara Falls to, um, you know, remotes to, I, I, I was a co-producer of the New Year's Eve party two years and, and I believe associate producer for two other years. I don't remember what my credits were for the final two years of that. Um, yeah, did the legendary New Year's Eve show, booked guests from around the world. I was a default entertainment reporter at times as well, got to interview some heroes. I, uh, and then on the weekends, I was there, the city news film critic for five years when they were doing their news station. And so that was a lot of fun as well, because I got to review films both on air and through my blog. Uh, but BT was amazing. Like I, I worked with I mean, it was grueling. It put years on my life. I was literally at work from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. sometimes, but it was the best experience at a time where morning shows still meant something. And it was also the best experience at a time when the morning show ratings in Toronto were the biggest out of all the shows. Marketing has always been a big part of what you've done. But would you say that your move to Cineplex was your first time working at a place that was formally focused in a role, at least that was formally focused on marketing versus say media and entertainment and reporting. Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah. I think, um, uh, you know, again, um, I didn't stop doing much personality driven stuff, even though I was at Cineplex, I still had, um, a separate series that I was on at CBC called short film face off that I shot in, um, Halifax uh, I still did subject matter expert stuff for TIFF at the time. So I always let my presence in media be a part of my life. I baked it into everything that I've done ever since I got it because I knew how precious it was. So I didn't stop. But what I definitely did do is I turned into a corporate shill by going to Cineplex. And I say shill, I don't mean that negatively, but I le- had to learn how um, – how a more formal environment did things because at, at city we were still in the confines of Rogers, but we were an open concept newsroom where, you know, somebody getting shot in the city could completely change the flavor of an episode. Right. So, mm. so it was very, the, it was a much slower pace, but when I originally got asked to come to Cineplex, it was because of the digital network that they were trying to build in this holistic way of trying to create this place where Cineplex was this hub 
where you can create all of this digital on signage and social and within YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. The goal was at that time to create this, you know, Cineplex digital agency, but the original liftoff with it was to do all um, corporate signage. So what they would do is they took over Royal Bank, Tim Hortons, McDonald's, and they did all the graphics and all the design, all the interior, you know, when you finally started to see kiosks and stuff, that was all Cineplex. And, and what, so what my job was at that time was to work with head office and with their corporate clients and stop and say, where are the real digital opportunities here? You know, what else can we do? What can we do with interactivity? What can we do with um, uh, content partnerships? And so it was amazing to get into that world, but it was entirely different in terms of my competencies. So going back on what you just said, did you have a big handle in shaping the pre-show or the pre? Yeah, the pre-show. No, actually. And so that's where I should be even clearer. So I did everything outside of the movie chains. So Cineplex has corporate clients, like I'd mentioned, that range from Tim Hortons to RBC to. And so there, what my side of the business was focused on is the opportunities for them. For their ah, corporate gotcha. clients, right? So you weren't working on any ads that were running in the pre-show or any of the content integrations in there. Because when you brought up content partnerships, I remember both when I was definitely when I was at CBC, we had I had nothing to do with it, but we had a we had some sort of cross-promotional deal with Cineplex where when George Strombolopoulos still hosted the hour, ah, he right. still had his show, he would if he had, say, for example, an actor on they would after the show was over they'd film maybe a little bit about a quick two-minute q a but then tie in the cineplex branding to it as well yes no in fact that was gone by the time i was um i was at cineplex and to that point the pre-show etc was done through through head office and completely uh, almost decimated to this weird thing by the time i was even there uh, i was focused more on the future of opportunities within their sphere of who they were already servicing so imagine the relationship they already had with tim hortons when they went and installed 4500 screens across the country in tim hortons restaurants so at that point they're like we need to put a bunch of stuff on these screens otherwise they're you know what else is this and so at that time they wanted to create this whole network around the fact that you know tim hortons can have um, a little bit of a, a TV network inside of their thing. And then when McDonald's wanted to exploit their partnership with the Olympics or when RBC wanted to do that, how do you use that in your digital sphere? We were thinking very much ahead of how these partnerships could be more for how Cineplex could make money, really. So what brought you to Radical Point Media? So I started to notice there was a big shift happening in the way people were creating social influence and how YouTubers... And, and people were were being um, were making money, and I realized that there was going to be a critical point where that couldn't be the case, where they couldn't just make money off of likes and clicks and people subscribing. So I went to Kirk um, at Radical Point, who at that time had a massive amount of lifestyle clients, and I said, I believe that the next phase of of content is going to be content to commerce. So if we can start to work with your clients on creating more of content that actually leads people to buy things, then we will be ahead of the game. And so what we did was we essentially went to Bravo and like other clients, et cetera, that Radical Point had and had worked with and started to pitch against the idea that personalities would start eventually selling their own stuff. But we were ahead of the game. 
um, we were, you know, we knew what was going to happen and we were ahead of the game. And, you know, uh, even the big TV networks were like, I don't think we're there. Like, I don't think this doesn't excite us. We're still trying to get nice graphics on the internet. So, yeah, it was a little unfortunate. We were ahead of the game because now every personality has a link tree, an entire store, a shop, merchandise, everything. So we did it. We were talking about doing it before any of these people. What does a good piece of content marketing look like? I always say content is either for the culture or for commerce. Obviously, in order for that to happen, it has to make a connection. And I don't mean to be drawing a sort of triangle, but that's what it is. If you're doing content, creating content, whether it's based on a good idea or a message, whatever, whatever, you have to show, right, that it has like a path to commerce for you. It leads to something that is going to make money or there's a definite connection between the culture of what you're creating and how it fulfills you. That's the way I sort of live my life. And when it comes down to content marketing, I don't think that there's any rules about actual content that is marketed. I think instead we have to become way better at playing within the rules of the platforms. And so the disconnect is while people say content is king, I kind of turn to them many times. Even I remember like even people will always put content as king in my, in my, you know, in describing the episode and stuff. And I never say that. I never say content is king. I say connection is king, but I always say it's got like you tell tell me somebody that lost a thousand dollars today on Facebook advertising that'll tell you that content is king. No, the platforms are king, man. And so the platforms get to rule. The your one algorithm switch away from all your content looking like crap to people. So I think we need to go beyond. I think we need to grow a little bit in the idea that the content itself is it's just part of the picture and you should be doing it for different reasons now you know who i think is doing it very well right now and i like that you are i like that you're leading with the platform and then you say curate the content so it adapts to the platform strengths i think ryan reynolds is hitting it out of the park on youtube right now Mm, absolutely yeah and here's and this is completely anecdotal but we're going back to the holiday shopping season of uh, 2019 when we could actually still go out and buy stuff into physical stores. And I'm sure everyone listening has seen at least one of his aviation gin commercials. It's his gin company that he bought. It's his baby. I know he did sell it, but he's still part of the company in some way, shape or form. But I was at a local uh, LCBO holiday shopping season, the gin section packed until you got to one section that was really bare. And as you got closer, you'd notice that maybe there was one or two bottles of aviation gin and everyone was gravitating towards that. Everyone was leaving, you name the brand, Bombay Sapphire. I'm going to mess up what the other brands are uh, potentially, but that was clearly everyone else's second and third choice versus aviation gin. And I wouldn't be surprised if some people walked right out and said, nope, that's what I wanted to buy. I'll go to another store to try. And it comes down to his YouTube videos, which he has played very well on YouTube. And I got to be honest with you, I've never seen a commercial for aviation gin on terrestrial television. Uh, no, I have seen it in other feeds off of YouTube. Like I've seen it on Twitter um, and, you know, other role ads, but I don't think tv but i you know i am 100 percent in agreement. i love the product i tweeted about the product he liked the tweet like he is interactive he is a very much that person who you want as your brand and brand ambassador because he does it properly so i agree but the problem with that is that's ryan that's not the cop yes right so yeah you know we can't give that content weight the same way as you would give it if i just did it right 
You know what I mean? So um, personality driven content right now is definitely a, a big thing, especially because we've barely interacted with personalities in general. What brought you to bookmark content and communications? Yeah, Bookmark was um, originally, uh, they own Air Canada Media, and um, it was just a contract. It it was interesting. At first, we were pretty ambitious about all the different things we wanted to do. But it just, there were so many things that started to happen in the airline industry right around that time. The 737 Maxes were grounded, and uh, they were definitely the next wave of the way Air Canada Media was looking to program content. And then En Route Magazine was going through a relaunch. And I ended up doing um, a feature story with a, with Priyanka Chopra for that. And, you know, like there was just, it was one of those situations where there was a lot of opportunity for the future. It just didn't know, we couldn't figure out where it represented itself at the time. Because Air Canada Media was going through so, so many different things. And I just didn't feel like we were going to be able to shepherd it together and they had a lot of stuff to clean up. Like it was pretty crazy when we looked at what we were trying to accomplish with um, Air Canada Media because we forget that Air Canada Media is a major media company in Canada. They buy and they sell um, advertising themselves and they're accountable to that magazine sells. Well, I don't know how it does now, but they needed digital offerings for those magazines. They needed, you know, 360 approaches to advertisers to have in-flight and touch points on the app and so, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot about the airline industry and how it was potentially going to grow. But, I mean, I can't imagine that post-pandemic, the uh, growth rate is going to be the same. On top of everything that you've accomplished, you are also a published writer. Your book is Rethinking Your Content from Strategies to Synergies. So I guess my first question is, where did the idea for the book come from? You know, actually, one of the triggers was when Apple had started to come up with the idea that you can monitor your screen time, it started to be open uh, people's eyes up to just how much time we were spending on social media at a personal level. You could see it on news stories and hear all the, the hype around the problems with it for, for a long time. But, but at that time, it was very personal. And that triggered something in me where I realized, well, wait a minute, if there are all these creators who are getting... Um, and all these and marketers and all these people that are spending all this time and money creating content, all these different ways, and all these platforms are making all this money. What we're not doing is taking a step back and saying, well, wait a minute, what were we originally trying to accomplish? So I just tried to narrow it all down into the idea that, look, there are five or six different ways you can make a good content piece work. If you follow a couple of these little things and think about it this way, you'll suffer less from the idea being counterintuitive to what you want to accomplish. You won't let a lot of good ideas die as soon as when you talk to people about, well, how do you optimize for this? Or how do you actually find a partner for this? Or how do you, you know, is this stuff that we license in the future? People, we have to start thinking that way because that time and effort that we're putting into things that we think are is going to be that next big thing, you know, there's value in that. And so when I created strategies and synergies, I've used real life examples as well. And I've just stopped and said, look, who would have thought that we did a JFL partnership with Tim Hortons inside of a Tim Hortons restaurant where we did JFL gags, right? And that was the first partnership of its kind where all of a sudden we had these two international um, uh, labels coming together with something that could work. That ended up being the precursor for so many other integrated campaigns. So from strategies to synergies, I really try to emphasize the fact that we should start looking at these platforms with the idea that there's some great opportunities for you and where they are might be in either partnerships, licensing, 
optimization as a tool or strategic communications. And that's what I cover in the, in the book. Was this completely self-published? Yes. Yeah, I did. Um, and to be honest with you, it was originally only supposed to be an ebook because I realized that, you know, sometimes you'll see people do a workout book. And I think I thought to myself, what do people put the book down and then work out? It doesn't make sense. So with a book about digital technology, I couldn't understand how I would write this flat piece of paper and not give you reference links, right? You want to know more about this. You should know more about that. I can't fit it all on this piece of paper. So what ended up happening was that the downloads ended up being so good that, you know, you go through the Amazon system and that's a whole other episode, but you know, they, they, you hit certain benchmarks and they start printing your book as well. And, um, it, it, I'm to be honest with you, my friend, I was very, very fortunate that I ended up putting something out at a time where people were just interested in something interesting. I, you know, it's not perfect by any means, nor is it foolproof. I'm writing a I'm writing a third one right now. Um, and so for next year, I'm releasing Rethinking Your Content 2022. And, and where can people pick up the book? I mean, you already mentioned that it's available electronically via Kindle, so that that's Amazon. But where else can it's, they pick it up? Oh, it's everywhere now. It, it, it was picked up by Goodreads. It was picked up um, Amazon UK. There's hard copies available on Google Books. Um, and then I've re-released my audio book as well on Audible, and that's more for people looking for ideas around personal branding um, and just getting out of that rut of not feeling like your personal brand has that uh, that touch. And I also recently did uh, a very quick ebook on the introductory of audio, social audio to people. So anybody who's interested in thinking about social audio as um, something they want to start to try, there's a free download on my website as well. Oh, this has been a fantastic chat. Moving on to rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. The campaign you're most proud of. I have to say it's been one of those years where you haven't been able to celebrate a lot of victories. So I'm definitely proud of the fact that I can, I was convinced and convinced myself to put out a self-published book, put out two subsequent, um, you know, uh, side books, let's say, or side projects as a result of that success. And it was extremely well received by uh, various groups of people. And look, this is, I'm doing excellent podcasts like this as a result. And I don't think that you and I would have even stopped to consider having a conversation unless we had more to talk about. So I'm glad the book has brought me down this path. Your favorite movie. Yeah. So I get asked this question a lot. One of the things we didn't talk about in all of this is that I've, I've actually been a film blogger for the past 20 years. I've run one of Canada's only blogs dedicated towards diverse voices in the film and television industry. And it's audited to the point where I'm one of the first to blog about some really um, important people in the Canadian film and television industry now. And so I don't answer that question because I know it would always get me in trouble if I ever picked a favorite. But I will tell you that what I do tell people is that if you are thinking about finding a new favorite or you are considering how the discovery process of new and interesting movies can happen, really take the time this year to go and engage in any virtual festival um, around the country. Because the virtual cinema that's being put on through via the festivals, via Hot Docs, via the Atlantic Film Festival, via Calgary, and via TIFF as well, they will, they're a great window for what's still happening around the world. Because unfortunately, we can't right now gather um, in the same way. So I, what I do when someone asks me about my favorite film is I tell people to go out and find their new favorite film by um, engaging with one of these festivals online. Okay, so let me spin the question around just a little bit. 
what movie can you watch over and over and over again? It might not be your favorite film, but just something that you can put on and watch over and over again. For me, I would say it's probably um, Ocean's Eleven or Tim Burton's Batman. And for Tim Burton's Batman, just to cite that, I've had it on VHS, DVD, and on Blu-ray. So as long as they keep making it and putting it out on a different disc, I'll buy it. I don't <laughs> that's have, I, I, yeah, I don't have a virtual copy or, or an electronic copy of it yet, but that's the next step. You'll get there, buddy. You'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I'll find the fourteen ninety nine to buy it off Google Play. So I'm putting the question to you though. There's got to be a film yeah, that you call, can just yeah, watch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, um, definitely action wise, uh, dialogue wise, it's always been the usual suspects. Um, and that I pick up on what Brian Singer and, and Camp were able to do in various different ways in that movie every time. It's unfortunate that the lead actor of that film is Martin Controversy, but it's definitely uh, one, of, one of my more favorite. But then on the comedy side, I can watch Anchorman twice in a row. Um, I, I never stop laughing. I will never stop quoting. It's the silliest movie in the world, and I love it. Your favorite video game? Street Fighter 2. Oh, damn. Uh, Turbo? Championship Edition? Or just Street Fighter 2? I'm I getting got, very technical. We're going back to the 90s together. We're yeah, I got, I, got three, I got three buttons on an arcade at Churchill Billiards in Mississauga. So I'm going to say like the most basic version, not a Turbo version. You know you're from Mississauga when you drop the name Churchill Billiards. I'm going to take it one step forward and say Churchill Billiards 2 because there was more than one location. Oh, right. You're right. There was. We, we are totally – there's no more – like literally all we're missing between you and me is Hazel McCallion on this podcast and it can't get any more Mississauga than that. So I got a Hazel McCallion story. Go one for it. High, one time in high school, um, we had thrown a big bash right after graduation and um, the next morning – the doorbell rang and I go and I look out the window and um, the license plate says Mayor One. And we had a friend at the time named Shauna Mayor. And so I went downstairs and I was like, wait, and while I'm going downstairs, I'm like, wait a minute, Shauna doesn't spell her last name like that. And so I go back upstairs and I see Hazel McCallion get into her car and drive off. And she had written a handwritten note about the garbage on the lawn from the party. <laughs> that I Nice. God. But I remember thinking to myself, what, what if I answered? And she was just, just standing there in the middle of the thing. Like, how would I have felt thinking to myself, I was expecting to see a friend of mine from high school and Hazel was there, but God bless Hurricane Hazel, man. She showed up at my dad's, um, my dad's retirement party. She didn't RSVP. She just kind of showed. And, <laughs> yeah. She's oh, great. Anyway, sorry about that. No, that's all good. That was a great story. If Hollywood or Bollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Riz Ahmed. I would love Riz Ahmed to play me. He's probably too expensive. And I think he would be Bollywood or Hollywood for me if I could. So my follow-up question to that, if Hollywood or Bollywood were to make that movie about your life story, what would it be called? Oh, it would be called Who's Mohit? Because more often than not, when people are trying to discuss what or where I operate and what function it's followed up with who's Mohit. Who's this person that you're talking about? Where's this, <laughs> what is this thing? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. You keep saying his name. That's what I hear from me. Anyway. So the good news is I entice reaction. Your favorite book. Well, my favorite book is, um, is this anything by Jerry Seinfeld? Um, but also one of my favorite books is uh, manhood by um, Michael Chabon or decoded by Jay-Z. Your favorite song. 
Uh, Bring the Noise, Public Enemy. Uh, definitely a song that every time it starts within the first five bars, I know exactly what mood it's going to put me in. Best advice you have ever received? Uh, I, right before I became a parent, um, a director once said to me, "Make be bendable. And I never understood what be bendable meant until I became a parent. And I realized just how much I needed to uh, be bendable in order to be successful at it. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I'd say uh, I would convince myself to own my anxiety. I think that, um, you know, I don't, I'm definitely not a situ- I'm not a person that sits there and talks about my own personal mental health related uh, conversation in this business. But I think a lot of where I feared the success I could really have could have been prevented as a result of me actually going with my gut feeling and, and being as ambitious as I thought I could be. So owning your anxiety would be definitely what I would say. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? At this stage, I would definitely be a mental health advocate and be speaking to way more people about the importance of enriching themselves with stuff to stay mentally healthy. I think it's it's absolutely crazy that we've um, come this far with ignoring how many things we're building around people that are really detrimental to mental health. And um, yeah, I think that we don't have enough, especially strong males, strong males that are raising um, the next generation. I don't think we're speaking about it enough. And I think it's time. Um, I really do. Oh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Let me just very quickly say that, A, this has been one of the better podcasts I've ever been a part of because your questions are awesome. B, you sound great. And C, I really would love to refer guests to you because I feel like you facilitate the type of conversation that lets people breathe, but you also uh, ask the right questions. Oh, geez, Mohit. I've, n- I've never closed the podcast this way. Uh, thank you so much for the kind words. And yeah, if you've got any recommendations, uh, shoot them my email. I will. Good luck with it. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.